Today, we are finishing out our series in Love, Care, and Communicate. And so we're going to go to two different parts of this letter in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 9, verses 19 to 27. And so it's the end of chapter 9 and then the end of chapter 10. But in chapter 9, we're going to begin in verse 19. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, you'll find this on page 957. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. We're going to hear Paul's heart and his desire to communicate the goodness of the gospel. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I may win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And then now jump to the 23rd verse of chapter 10. This is over on the next page. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything, I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So both of these passages together reveal to us Paul's heart and desire to communicate the message of the gospel, which we believe is the calling of all of us as Christians. That just as we're supposed to love him with all our heart, soul, and mind, and we're supposed to love others in the way that he loved us, that love will overflow in the desire to share what we have that is good with other people. 
It's so natural when we think of ordinary and everyday things. If you watch a movie that you really enjoy, you'll tell people about it. If you try a restaurant that you really enjoy, you'll pass it on to people. I can tell you two weeks ago, I had dark chocolate peanut butter cups from Trader Joe's and you should go get some. They're really, really good. It's a far drive, but you can buy two boxes and eat one while you drive back home. Like they're that good. It's easy to share things that you believe are good and that you love. And our love of God should overflow in our desire to communicate what we know and have with other people. One of the ways that Paul describes himself in chapter 9 is being free from all. It's important that we understand what this means. Because if we start at the beginning of the chapter, before we got to that verse, what he's specifically talking about is being free from any financial pressure. When Paul came to Corinth and he was set up there, he actually came because he'd been laughed out of the last city he'd been in. He was in Athens. He preached the message. Some people heard it, but some people were like, who are you? Get out of here. And he ended up in Corinth. While he was in Corinth, he started practicing as a tent maker and he met two other people who had the same profession. They started basically a business together and they were working together. So while living there and while working, they together decided to plant a new church. But they wanted to be sensitive in planting this new church that as sometimes people would try to discredit the work that was being done and say, they're just doing that because they want to get your money. They don't want you to give it there. They want you to give it here. Specifically in Corinth, Paul's recognized that and said, I'm not going to take any money for anything I do. And, And he now writing a letter back to them reminds them of that fact that this wasn't done so that I could somehow get rich what I'm sharing is really just out of the overflow of the joy that I have in believing it out of the goodness of it and so in Corinth specifically he continued to work full-time in his business and in whatever available well while he was working but then in whatever available time after that He was in synagogue. He was proclaiming the message. He was meeting with believers in their home. So then he says, and so in doing that, I'm free from all. The the message that I'm proclaiming, no one can accuse me of having an ulterior motive of any kind because I didn't do it for my own advantage. Any cost that had to be assumed for Paul to plant the church in Corinth, he assumed himself. He took on the bills. He took on the responsibility. Then, as the church got planted and established, there were people that needed to stay and remain and do the work. So in the very same chapter, if you read the whole thing, he goes on to say, now don't hold every one of them to the same standard that I had for myself. I felt a specific need to do it this way so that people couldn't discredit me for what I was doing. But that's not how now you should hold everyone to that exact same standard. That's not how it works for everyone. And now that the church is big enough and large enough and there's tons of problems that need to be addressed, there's people who need to be focused on that full-time and you need people who are able to do that. But when he says he is free from all, he is acknowledging, he's reminding them of their history that he did this good work with no ulterior motive. He did it simply out of the overflow and the joy to see other people come and believe the gospel. 
And it's not just financial. There's also an emotional and spiritual sense in which Paul is free from all that he goes on to describe. He could plant this church at cost to himself in time and effort and energy because Paul knew that the worst of all of his sins had been forgiven and the best of everything that God had for him in heaven was secure eternally. And when you know that, that the worst of whatever you've done is forgiven in the cross of Jesus Christ and the best of what God has in store for you for eternity with him in heaven is secure. No one can take it from you. You live the rest of your life free. You are free. You're not doing things to make up for the bad things you did. And you're not doing a bunch of things because you're just hoping maybe you'll make it. If the worst has been forgiven and the best is secure, for the rest of your life, you can maintain a posture of generosity. You can live in the emotional and spiritual freedom that that is meant to give you. And that is something that God still desires for each and every one of us today. He doesn't want any of us to do things to compensate for the guilt we feel for something we've done wrong. He doesn't want any of us to try to be working our way to earn ourselves toward heaven. He wants us to believe in the good news so that the things that we believe in, we can't be pressured out of believing. No amount of peer pressure or people laughing at us or picking on us or what can get us to change our minds because we're not doing it for that reason. No amount of hardship or trial or struggle would get us to all of a sudden doubt everything we believe because that's not why we were doing it in the first place. We can be free to love people with zero ulterior motives because we know that the worst has been forgiven and the best is yet to come. And it's still, today, just like it was in Corinth, right? If, if you might have been your own thought at one point in time or as you might interact with coworkers or neighbors and express your commitment to God, your desire to be a part of a church, one of the easiest things for Christians to be accused of is all they care about is your money. It's all they want. And we have a responsibility to show that no, that's not all we care about. Uh, I read recently a biography. It's interesting. It's a biography of a book, um, Mere Christianity. There's a new series out that basically is taken great works of literature and now considered, well, how was this book received when it first came out and how is it received 10 years later? But eventually the kind of, something becomes so popular it takes on a life of its own. So a church historian wrote a biography of the book, Mere Christianity. It's written by C.S. Lewis. He was an atheist all the way up until the age of 50 when he converted to Christ. When he converted to Christ then, he was one of the best people to articulate the faith for those who didn't believe in it. And he knew as someone who was an atheist all the way up until 50, that his own criticism of Christians was that they had an ulterior motive, that they simply wanted to swindle people out of money. And then he became one of the most successfully published defenders of the faith. So something that's not as well known about him is that if he wrote anything for the defense of the faith, what we would call apologetics. He did not keep any of the royalties of those books that he wrote. 
because he didn't want someone else to say, you're just saying this so that you can make money. When he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, which was connected to the very profession that he had as a teacher of children's literature, that was something that, yes, he still, his faith was informed in that, and he made money from that. But he was specific and purposeful in that if this is going to defend the faith, I don't want to myself be made better from it. So that if I'm in a debate five years from now or 10 years from now with someone else and they're accusing me of my motives, I can in good conscience say, that's not why I'm doing this. And he recognized that. And that's still something that we have to pay attention to. There are people who will say the right thing, act the right way, do all kinds of things with an ulterior motive to look good or to get something from you. And so part of our challenge is not only to communicate the message, but to communicate it with integrity. We want you to believe this, but whether you believe this or not doesn't affect whether I love you or not. It doesn't affect whether we can have a relationship or not. And it actually doesn't even affect me. Like, my relationship with God is secure. I know the worst of my life has been forgiven. I know the best is yet to come. If you don't come to believe what I believe, I can walk away sad. I can grieve that. But I'm not a failure. I'm not all of a sudden insecure in my own walk based on how anyone else's responds to our faith. That's what it means to be free from all. As a church, it's one of the things we maintain as part of a tradition that we inherited that we continue to do uh, in not passing an offering plate. Well, people who come, and I know they're newer, when they say, I, I, okay, the one thing I can't figure out is how you give here. And we say, yeah, we, we, we don't want, if anyone is just visiting us on a Sunday and they come, to think that there's any other objective than to worship God and to hear from his word. If you're someone who comes on a regular basis and you do that and you want to then figure out how to support that, all of the burden is on you to figure that out. Because we, we recognize that is still a criticism that people make today. And so we want to show in whatever way we can that isn't why we exist. We believe in the message. The message compels us to love one another and the message is good and so we want to share it. And then anything that we do do, as much as we can, costs nothing to participate in. That's the goal. That there are no financial barriers to people being able to do whatever it is that we desire or invite people to do as a congregation. And that's what Paul is saying. If, if we embrace this posture, we will be free from all. And that's that's how he is with the Corinthian church. He can write this letter that includes a lot of rebuke and a lot of hard truths because no one can question his motives. He's not doing it for himself. He's not doing it for his fame. But what's fascinating is in the very same sentence in verse 19 of chapter 9, for though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all. So I'm, I'm free from the pressure of having to do this only to satisfy other people or only to uh, make ends meet. I'm free from that. But in my freedom, I'm intentionally choosing to serve anyone and everyone I can. And Paul's openness to doing that is part of what has made his life a series of journeys. 
that for three years he stays in one place and as things get established, he moves on to the next place and then he moves on to the next place. And that is often when someone identifies a, a calling and a draw towards missions work is that sense of, I want to give God a blank check. I want him to tell me anywhere I can go. And then often it's going to involve a geographic change. Often it's going to involve doing something that no one is doing right now. By becoming a servant to all, maintaining a posture of openness to whatever the Lord would have for us. And so Paul had that. And then in verse 20, he says, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. What's fascinating about that, if you're just visiting us today, is that Paul is Jewish. So for Paul to say that, he, that now being Jewish is something that he has to become in order to win them tells us something fascinating about how he views himself in Christ. That who he is in Christ is now the primary way in which he would identify himself. And even his own ethnic heritage now is second to that reality. He's a Christian first. And as a Christian, he wants to show respect and love for everyone he grew up with and his own background. And then he wants to show love and respect for people who don't have his background and don't speak his language. But he identifies himself as a Christian first and foremost. And so to all these other people, those under the law, those outside the law, those who are weak, those who are strong. He has to work to do everything for their sake. And he's willing to do it out of a posture of freedom to give himself as a servant for many. Uh, this is one of the, as I read this quote, part of this is in the back of your handout, uh, but I'll read it in full. The grace of giving has nothing to do with being well off. It's not dictated by ability. It's a willingness to give. Giving is viewed as a privilege. It's joyously enthusiastic and pleads for the opportunity to give more. It is so simple. When all one has is given to God, giving to others becomes the natural reflex of the soul. It is easy to surrender part when we've already given the whole. It is easy to surrender part when we've already given the whole. And if in becoming a Christian is giving to God all of our burdens and all of our sins and saying, you're Lord over all of it, you're Lord over my time, you're Lord over my money, you're Lord over my relationships, I'm giving it all to you. Then if he says, okay, so now this is the part I want you to give up. This is the part I want you to change. Well, if we've already given him everything, then giving him the parts along the way should be easy. If we're holding back and saying, okay, I'm going to give you this little bit, and then if this goes well, I'll give you a little bit more, and then, and we're sort of testing the waters of the relationship with God, then each time the opportunity to serve becomes this contested battle. Why do I have to do this again? Why do I have to do it now? Why do I have to... But if from the beginning we put it all on the table and said, Lord, you're Lord of it all, and it's all yours, so what do you want with it? Then along the way, when he makes his individual asks... Okay, you see that person from your background, Jewish, and you know they'd be offended by this. I need you to go do that for them because otherwise you're going to offend them. And then the next day, now you're at this table with this person who doesn't have that background. This is what I'm asking you to do so that you don't offend them. Not in a, a limiting sort of, you know, 
Paul says, I'm trying to please everyone, but we would almost mishear that in the personality who tries to make everyone happy. Like, you can't make everyone happy. Paul had no problem offending people. Uh, just read the whole letter. But in this way to say, he doesn't discriminate. He's going to tell the truth to anyone, and he's going to show compassion to anyone. And when God makes the specific and the individual asks of him to love people under the law or outside the law, those who are weak or those who are strong, as a servant of all, he's willing to do it. Because the needs are great. We need people that have this kind of a posture towards the world. That are, yes, free from all, but able and willing to serve all. Last night at prayer request time, bedtime, uh, the older two boys were, were just stopping to pray, and I said, okay, so we're going to pray for our normal things like no scary dreams and a good night's sleep and stuff, but what about just anything else in your mind that we can you know, pray for? Just anyone in the world, nothing off the table. And so one says, let's pray for all the people who don't have homes like we do. I said, okay. So the other one says, Let's pray for all the people who don't have water like we do. Okay. And the next one goes, let's pray for all the people who, don't, who can't hear or can't smell. It's like, okay, let's just let's start praying because we're going to start listing so many things that we won't be able to pray for all of them. But in their minds, there's this realization that every good thing we have is, one, not something we have to regret having, but we better be thankful for it and we do live in a world that needs the kind of love the gospel calls us to. Because there are people who don't have homes like we do. There are people who don't have water like we do. There are people who can't do the same things that the majority of people can. And so if the people who have and are able do not willingly love and serve, then so many people will suffer alone. And Paul is saying, as a whole community, the Corinthian church is to be one that is willing to be servants of all. And so that's why chapter 9 is kind of his description of his posture. In chapter 10, he's basically saying, and this is what we're all supposed to do. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's quoting Psalm 24. Then he imagines, if an unbeliever invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience, if they say this has been offered for a sacrifice, he realizes there's going to be different scenarios and what's right to do in one is not always right to do in another, but the posture of it all in verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In chapter 9, he said, he does it all for the sake of the gospel. And here he says to do it all for the sake of the glory of God. And so though free from all and now a servant to all, he's inviting them to do all the things they do for the gospel and for God's glory. Whether you eat or drink, let it all be out of the overflow of your own heart. And so as a church, just as much as we're committed to communicating the truth of the gospel, we want to be committed to communicating the posture of the gospel, which means in all the nonverbal ways we can, showing people that we love them and that we're willing to serve them. And so you communicate the gospel when you, as a teacher, instruct your children, 
And when you notice that one of them is falling behind, you make an effort to bring them up in whatever ways you can. You communicate the gospel when as a parent you love your children individually and seek to raise them based on whatever their needs are now to whatever their needs will be. You communicate the gospel when you see that your neighbor's not able to maintain their landscaping and you can and you say, I'll do this for you. You communicate the gospel when you choose to live in as disciplined of a way as you can and keep your own bills as small as you can so that you have more to give to others. All of those are ways to communicate the gospel. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, if it's for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of God's glory, this is how we communicate the message to people. And that we do it out of the overflow of God's love for us. Not just as a hook to get them to come to church, not just as a hook for them to like us, but because they're people made in his image. They are worthy of dignity and respect. And one of the best ways we can show that to them is to serve them. And so this is our calling individually in our lives, but even collectively as a church. And when people see us serve in this way, they'll realize we're sincere about our love of God. (laughs) When we are worshiping, when we are singing Him, when we are proclaiming all those songs, yeah, they really mean it. There isn't an ulterior motive. This is one of my favorite hymns, but I think it describes sort of the progression so well of when we realize the love of God for us, what it calls us to. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Now were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine demands my soul, my life my all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us. That as you look down upon us in our gathering this morning, that you desire for all your sons and daughters to be free. Free from the shame and the guilt of our sin free from any anxiety or insecurity about the goodness of our relationship with you, of your purpose toward us, your love and affection for us, and our ability to enjoy you forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Father, and there, if as you look down upon this place, you see areas where we are not free, where we are still doing things to please people, we're still doing things out of fear or guilt. Would you do a mighty work? Would you pour out your spirit and set us free in new ways so that we could live in a posture of generosity and love to those who are immediately around us and to those we do not yet know. Help us to communicate the gospel 
with our words and with our actions. And to do it with joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.